This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. My name is Trevor Williams. I'm your host here. And today on the show, we're going to talk about farming and banking how they get along, and actually how typical banks kind of set up farmers to fail, which sucks, obviously. So our guest today is Mary Jo Earman, and she has wrote a book, and she is an expert when it comes to farming without the bank. So Mary and I are going to talk about um, her background, how she came up with this ingenious way of farming without the bank. So basically, farmers, you know, Farming is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's super expensive. The land is expensive. Usually it's in a family for one, two, three generations. We've had people on the show that it's like the seventh or eighth generation. And something that a lot of people don't know is that if you're working with the bank on your farm, each generation that takes over that farm basically kind of has to buy it back from the bank over and over and over again. And so Mary Jo is going to tell us why that's a bad idea, how that even started in the first place, and how farmers can do a lot better than just doing it that way with the bank. And so we're going to talk about um, farmers' legacies, how they can not buy into that generational change where each family has got to buy it over and over again from the bank. You know, um, why farmers need to think for themselves as a banker as opposed to just relying on the bank. Um, and so, and also it's not a bad, it's not bad for farmers of any size to be told no from the bank. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. It just really depends on their situation. And also the fact that if you do it this way, the farmers have control of their money, which is a huge factor about when you can buy, when you can sell, whether that's your farm or more land or stuff like that. And so I really have not thought about this whole concept, but it's, I mean, it's super duper fascinating. I mean, financing and farms. I mean, so Allie and I bought a house a few months ago, and that was already super hectic. So I can't imagine 
doing that on a larger scale, especially when that's your family farm, that is your main source of income. It's just absolutely crazy. So if you want to learn more about Mary Jo and about this really amazing process, um, go to farmingwithoutthebank.com and you'll see all of her great content, um, her speaking engagement, stuff like that. The book, you can also buy the book. It's easily called Seller um, Farming Without the Bank. So it's great. Uh, and also, she has a podcast, which you should definitely check it out. I'm on her website right now checking it out. And it's also called the Farming Without the Bank podcast. It's available on all podcast platforms. We will link it in the description as well. So if you're a farmer, I hope you learn a thing or two from this podcast. I definitely think you will. And even if you're a consumer, this is another one of those episodes where you really get a behind-the-scenes look of farming and financing and all the hassles and all the struggles the farmers have to go through. And okay, before I forget, so if you have Amazon Prime, you have absolutely got to watch Clarkson's Farm. Um, I know a lot of people have been watching it, have been posting about it on Facebook and Instagram. So Jeremy Clarkson is one of like my favorite TV personalities. He did Top Gear on BBC, and now he does The Grand Tour on Amazon Prime along with Richard Hammond and James May. I grew up watching him on Top Gear, him and the gang on Top Gear, and it was amazing. And basically with this show, he buys a farm and he does all of the farming himself. And Allie and I have been watching it like every other night with dinner. And it's amazing. I mean, it's beautifully shot. It looks absolutely beautiful. It's so in-depth. And Jeremy is often super-duper funny and super just kind of crazy and all over the place. But he does just an immaculate job showcasing how hard farming is. I mean, I, I'm not trying to get cheesy, but it like almost, almost brings a tear to my eye whenever we're watching it. Because I'm like, holy cow. Farming is finally getting the attention, the respect, just kind of the classy production value that it deserves. And now, I mean, I think it's been like the number one show on Amazon for a couple weeks now since it came out. And they're already working on a season two. And now Jeremy is doing a book on his whole experience. So, yeah, if you haven't already uh, checked out Clarkson's Farm on Amazon, you will not regret it. So anyway, on with the show, this is learning more about how farmers can farm without the bank. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening, and on with the show. All right, well, Mary Jo, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? I am good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to chat with you. You seem like a a farming expert when it comes to finances and stuff on the farm and all that good stuff. So, but before we kind of dive into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got where you are now. I grew up on a farm ranch operation. My dad was a purebred breeder. So we had Charlet cattle, which you hardly see anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I, all you see are black ones. Um, I'm, I am a little bit partial to the white ones, but so I grew up on a farm ranch operation. I left the farm um, found the infinite banking concept, which is what I teach the farmers. And I knew right away that that was going to be what farmers needed to get away from the banking system. And then they didn't believe me. So I, you know, you know, Trevor, farmers can be stubborn. So <laughs> <laughs> and I am a hundred percent German. So they've met their match. 
But so I was like, you know what? If you guys don't believe me, then I'm writing a book and I'm going to make you read it. So you understand the full idea of what I am trying to share. And then they got it and they understood it. And so hence how I am here today. Well, hey, there you go. I mean, it, it, having a book, I mean, you've got something tactile. You're like, hey, all the information I'm going to tell you is right here. Like, just read it. So what was the feedback on it after you read the book? Um, it's well, it depends who's reading it. Right? Uh, but yeah. Some people think I am super smart and some people think I'm an idiot. But it, you know, it's all kind of where people are at, if they're open minded or not. Um, some people say, Mary Jo, I don't read. Well, guess what? I have them in audio too. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I've eliminated all the issues. Um, but it is a, it really is a different concept. And we really need to think differently about what we've been doing. So the reception is mixed. I'm not going to say every, I mean, I've sold 10,000 books. Nice. So I'm not going to say every single person thinks that I'm a genius. Mm. Um, but I do have, you know, I've talked to several thousand farmers. So I would say the majority of them, and that's just the ones that call me. Not every one of them calls me back. But that's just the farmers that are saying, hey, I need to make a change because the pain is bad enough that what I'm doing isn't working. Gotcha. So the whole concept of farming without the bank, I mean, I've never worked on a farm. I've been on a lot of farms, but I know it's, I mean, to buy a combine and a tractor and seeds and fertilizer, it's all expensive. And it's not something that you're getting super rich off of by any means. And so why is this whole, why is the whole financing with the bank? Why is it kind of broken? Why does it need fixing? Well, interestingly enough, a um, hundred and it's, uh, I forget exactly what year. I want to say 102, 103 years ago, there was an act passed by the government that allowed farmers to, you know, get bank loans. Mm -hmm. Before that, farmers didn't get bank loans. And so for over a hundred years, the farmer has been going to the bank and saying, hey, can I get a loan for this? Can I get a loan for that? And I don't work just with big farmers. I have I have people who I would call a gardener because mm, right? okay. I mean, it all depends where you're at. But I have a client in Chicago who literally has raised garden beds and he's farming that way because that's how they farm. So I go from one extreme to 25,000 acres all the way down to an acre. Um, so it ultimately doesn't matter. They all want to go to the bank and say, hey, I need money for that tractor or that tiller or seed, fertilizer, chemical, cows, you know, whatever on the ranching side of it. And the banker gets to decide if they have the money or not. And mm. then they're tying it all up. And so, yes, if you get to large acreages, you're talking about a huge amount of money. We could be at $3 million of just operating a year. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot of money. You know, even if we are just gardening or we have an urban farm, well, now we're talking about several thousand dollars. But even they go to the bank trying to get started and the bank says, you're not a farmer. Like, I don't even know what you're doing. You scare me. I don't want anything to do with it. And so a lot of those guys, because I have a lot of those clients. So a lot of those guys are using credit cards to operate. Mm. And they're having to be really super creative. But in the financial side of it, doesn't matter where it's at. We have a hundred year old problem that needs to get fixed. Because at this point, a hundred years later, the bank has our farm and our livelihood as collateral. And there's not really another industry that I'm aware of 
um, or that I can think of that your livelihood is collateral to the bank. You know, a lot of us are business owners and we can just walk away from the business, but that we don't lose our home and we don't lose our livelihood. Mm, that's a good point. I mean, I've interviewed a bunch of like, I guess you could say ag tech companies where instead of leveraging their livelihood, they're averaging the business or leveraging the business. And then they're just doing a whole bunch of like crowdfunding and stuff like that. And so, I mean, it seems like there's no good solution for farmers. And it's making me think of that meme with uh, with Dave Chappelle. And it's like modern problems require modern solutions. So so what what are some modern solutions that farmers have out there instead of using this hundred year old method? Well, this actually isn't a modern solution. This solution is 200 years old. Oh, okay. Well, hey, <laughs> so whatever works. The solution works. <laughs> there before the problem began. And so if we really, really go back to 200 years ago, we have to ask ourselves, and all of us should be asking ourselves, what did we do with our money before banks? Mm -hmm. What did we do with our money before 401ks and IRAs? It wasn't the stock market. It hasn't always been the stock market. And so if we really look back at in time, that was whole life insurance. And so what I'm teaching is called the infinite banking concept. And it's a way of thinking that A, you think like a banker and you own the bank. So mm -hmm. first we have to get the thought process right. We need to think like a banker. If we're going to utilize our money, we need to pay it back plus interest. Because we're willing to pay the bank interest, we need to pay it back plus interest. We need to own the bank. So when the bank makes a profit, we get to share in the profit because we're owners of the bank, right? A lot of people get mad because that the you know bank owner's driving away in his Cadillac Escalade. Well, it's because he owns the bank. Why is there a bank on every corner? Because they own, they, they, they're making money off of our money. And so what we're doing is teaching you A, how to think differently, and then B, where do we put that money to best utilize it? And that is in dividend paying whole life that is structured, this is the key, that is structured correctly so that we have immediate access to cash value to borrow and pay back rather than having to wait 20 to 30 years to do that. Mm. So whole life has been around. People are like, oh, it's new. It's this, you know, infinite banking is this newfound thing. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> That's 200 years old. Banking is new. 401ks are new. IRAs are new. That's all untested territory in, you know, the way I look at it. Gotcha. So how easy is it if you're working with a bank now to kind of tell them, hey, see you later, I'm going to do this whole life insurance is infinite banking thing. How easy is it to make that switch? It's not. Uh oh, that's no bueno. <laughs> <It's quite> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to sell anything. Um, <laughs> that is it is a process and farmers are very impatient when it comes to wanting to get out of the bank. So the very first thing that people will say to me is, well, Mary Jo, that's, I'm never going to go with, I'm never going to get away from the bank. I need $3 million. How am I going to do that? I didn't say you're going to do it in your lifetime. Right. I mean, it's a, it might be generational that we have life insurance that we get to utilize today, but when we die, that death benefit gets passed on income tax free. So the next generation doesn't have to rebuy the farm. Mm-hmm. It may, I have some farmers who are already out of the banking system. Maybe they weren't in the banking, maybe, you know, maybe they weren't knee deep in, but I have other ones who may never see it. 
maybe they're 65 years old and they are not going to live long enough to be outside of the banking system, but it has to start somewhere and we have to be patient. If you're farming 10,000 acres, that didn't happen overnight. If you have 500 head of cattle, that didn't happen overnight. So don't put, don't hold this to a different standard than what you're holding your operation. Cause that you're fine. If it takes you time to build, nothing's going to happen overnight. That makes sense. Oh yeah. 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 It, it takes 10 years to be an overnight su- success, especially when it comes to having a business or anything. <laughs> so how, what might the perfect scenario look like to where I'm going to start a farm next week and I have no finances or anything and I want to do this concept, what would be the perfect start so I can completely avoid the bank and then have kind of have all that power? If you were going to start tomorrow, my suggestion, slow and steady, Mm. right? So do not go buy things you don't necessarily need. I have a lot of small farmers who are borrowing the neighbor's equipment, who are helping the neighbors so that they can borrow it for free, right? Or they're hiring somebody with a tractor and a combine or whatever it is that they need to just plant or to harvest or to cut hay or to bale. You don't have to own everything. And the, this is the one of the bigger misconceptions in the farming world is that the, here are the people that are getting rich, the bank and the dealership. Mm-hmm. Because every farmer thinks that they need to have their own piece of equipment. For heaven's sakes, why can't we share? Now, it doesn't always work to do that. Don't get me wrong. But I have a lot of clients and I have talked to a lot of people that have started in that exact scenario. And they started with, they start, they have an off the farm job and they buy what they can with cash and then they get started. And so in my, in my case, if you come and see me, we're going to redirect some of your off the farm income to a life insurance policy so that we can start building that pool of money. So when you do start to buy things, we're going to borrow it from there. And then we're not going, we're not going to need the bank, right? Or if we do need them, they're going to be plan B instead of plan A. Cause there are times where we might want to use the bank. Their interest rates are really low right now, but do we want to put everything up as collateral mm. to do so? And do we need to grow so fast that all of a sudden we have this huge loan and the stress is just astronomical and cattle prices drop or commodity prices drop. And now we can't pay for it because we wanted to grow so fast. You know, there's such a thing as not getting too big for your britches. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you, you don't need all the equipment out there. I mean, for example, we've been watching, um, I don't know if you've watched it, but Clarkson's Farm on Amazon Prime. Have you heard about that? Huh. So it's the, I don't know if you ever watched Top Gear, but it's one of the presenters, Jeremy Clarkson on there. He does the grand oh, tour on Amazon. Yeah. He's so funny. I but love Top Gear. Yeah. But <laughs> he, so on Amazon, he bought his own farm and he's had it for years. And this season of Clarkson's farm, it's just him going through it and kind of just the everyday thing of like, what's it like doing a farm, planning, getting sheep and stuff like that. But it's funny because he, is well off because he's been a TV presenter for years. And so like every episode, he's literally buying equipment after equipment after equipment. And it's funny because you're like, "Eh, normal farmer doesn't have this problem. So this is a nice thing to have, but it's just kind of comical. But that's such a good idea that you can just borrow your neighbors or a friend's equipment instead of buying, I don't know, $20,000 
piece of equipment that you might only need once or twice a year. Yeah. And a normal farmer does have that problem because they're constantly needing something. Yeah. They're constantly wanting something. And so we have had this mentality in the farm industry that A, we buy it all, and then we buy more to avoid taxes. Mm. And so now we have taxes. So now we're going to go buy more stuff that we don't really need. We want it, but we don't really need it. And so now we've been buying things to avoid taxes. And then we go to the bank and we pay the bank interest and then they have collateral. And so I had, um, I had a farmer tell me, or well, it was actually my brother because he farm. my parents do farm. Okay. So I, <laughs> I get great material from them. <laughs> um, but my brother said to me one day, well, you know, the banker's all mad because he's not sure if I can make my payments. And he's like, I know I'll make my payments. He's like, that's not a big deal. And he goes, he's the one that told me I could go buy that piece of equipment. And I said, whoa, you wrote the check. Mm -hmm. I said, don't be blaming the banker. Don't even blame the accountant. Because he said, you should buy it. You sign the check. So you need to know your numbers. And a lot of, and I don't care if you're small or large, I see it on both sides. Like if you are small, you need to separate that farm from the off the farm income. So if you're going to start an operation and you have off the farm income you're sticking in, that's capital. You need to keep track of how much capital the farm got, you stuck into the farm because at some point the farm needs to pay you back. And if they can't, why are you running that business? It's not a hobby. It's a business. And you need to run it like a business and you need to know your numbers. The farms that are failing don't know their numbers. And I've talked to thousands of them. They don't, I can tell immediately if somebody knows their numbers or not. If they're guessing, there are people that come and they have it to the penny. And then there are people like, well, I don't know. It's about here, here, here. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, if, if we don't know the difference between a line of credit and total operating costs, because a lot of times I'll say, well, what are your total operating costs? And they're like, well, I borrow, you know, half a million dollars a year. No, that's your line of credit. How much does it take you to operate? Mm -hmm. And they don't know because they've never been taught. They don't look at the numbers because God created them to be a farmer, not a bookkeeper. And so there's so many things that have not been looked at properly on all sides of it. And we have, there's this huge movement right now for homesteading and these people want just like your Clarkson Farms guy, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to go from TV personality to farmer because it looks fun, but it's a lot of work and it's a business and we need to treat it like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you do you have any good resources or anything for people that might not be experts in bookkeeping? Because I've heard of a lot, not a lot of new stuff, but I interviewed a bookkeeper for specifically for ag a few months ago. And that's something I never really have thought about because, I mean, I guess it was just like, you know, keep an Excel file and that's it. And but I feel like there's more technology out there. So do you recommend any kind of bookkeeping software for farmers? I do not. Um, I just recommend a really good bookkeeper. Mm. And the, there are different softwares. Texas A&M, I heard, um, has a really good one. I, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but I do have a client that he quit using QuickBooks because it wasn't detailed enough. Mm. And so they are using a different program that they can actually say, okay, I bought hay 
and I have this many cows to feed it to, this many sheep, this many goats, for example. Well, now I need to break that hay bill up into three different enterprises. And so Mm. that software can do that if you want to get that detailed. And you really should get that detailed. If you look at programs like Ranching for Profit, um, they really make you look at what enterprise is making money. And I had a guy that I talked to a few months back and he's like, well, I've got, you know, this loan, this loan, this loan. And it was a tractor, a conditioner and a baler. And I said, well, that's all you have for hay acreage. It was like a few hundred acres. And I'm like, why do you have such big equipment if that's all you're farming? He's like, well, I used to have a business where I would hay for other people. I'm like, so you don't do that anymore? No. I'm like, then why do you still have the equipment? Well, because it's, you know, I got to hire somebody to do mine then. I said, well, what's it going to cost you to hire somebody to do yours? So he checked into it and here it was as much money to hire somebody as he paid in repair bills last year. Oh, wow. And so he sold, he just, he just listed his stuff for auction here a couple weeks ago, I seen. Um, And so like, why have it? Why are we sitting, why aren't we looking at our enterprises and saying, this is what's making me money and this isn't, you know, I have a lot of people that will have sheep. Um, They might have sheep and then they might have some haying and they might have some cattle and okay. So which enterprise is actually making money? Mm Because if there's one that's not making money, get rid of it. You know, we can't just plant, we can't just necessarily plant corn and soybeans because that's what's traded on the market. Are they making money? If they're not making money, why do we keep doing that? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Or big farmers need to market their grain correctly. That's another thing that a lot of farmers don't do is they don't market their grain. They don't call a broker. They don't hedge. They don't do puts and calls. Like they just haul it to the elevator and get screwed. They don't try to get the best price for them. They just go to the most local place. Yep. Yep. And they go, oh, today's the day to sell because the market's up. I better haul grain to town instead of saying, here's my contract and I've got a contract and I've got hedging on it. And so I can get my best price for it and I can sell it in bulk with other farmers because I've done that through a broker. Um, There's a lot of things that we have, our parents did not do in traditional farm world. And then in the regenerative agriculture the urban farming, that's, it's not a new movement because mm-hmm. that's also very old, right? We're going back to how we used to grow food in that area, but the traditional world doesn't understand that. And so how are they marketing their stuff? It's the same thing. Are you all going to the farmer's market and setting up a booth? Do we all need a booth at the farmer's market? Or can we say, hey, you know what, John? I don't want to deal with those people at the farmer's market. I don't want to sit there for 10 hours on a Saturday. How about I just let you take my stuff and you buy it from me wholesale? Yeah, that's a pretty good win. I mean, yeah, I feel like a lot more people have been going to farmer's markets and we've talked about it a lot on here. Um, But of course, you're going to have people that are great people pleasers that can go to a farmer's market and then you're going to have people that can't do that. And that's okay but maybe they can work in tandem to where, like you said, they can sell wholesale and still benefit mm-hmm. off of farmer markets and, all, and that stuff. Mm-hmm. I am not a farmer's market kind of person. <laughs> really? I mean, I will go, but I am not going to sit there all day. 
it that I, I do not have the personality to sit somewhere for 10 hours. I used to do farm shows with my book and that was painful. Um, just because you have a lot of browsers, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody's there to buy. They're just there to hang out. And I look, time is money. And I could be at home doing other things that create cash flow instead of sitting at a farmer's market. What else could we be doing at home to, that's going to create more income? Instead of just saying, hey, you know what? John has got a booth. And if I can make a deal with you, I'll supply you with garlic because you're not growing garlic. So I'll supply you with garlic and you've got all the other things. Or I even have direct to consumer clients who don't have enough beef. Mm. So they go to the neighbor and they buy the beef directly from the neighbor because they know exactly how it was raised. And the neighbor then doesn't have to have the logo and the packaging and the website and the shopping cart and the delivery and the customer service, right? He gets to just sell his beef knowing he has a contract that somebody's going to buy beef. I look at it as a win-win. Oh yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, I've seen so many farmers lately go to that direct to consumer model. And so what kind of a, or what kind of like a profit difference is there between going straight to consumer versus, you know, going to a processor distributor and then to stores. I'm assuming it would be a lot more if you're going direct to, um, consumers. Yeah, I am. Somebody told me the other day what they're making per hide. Um, I don't even want to quote it because I don't remember it exactly. I don't know what they're making selling it to, you know, like JBS. I have no idea what those guys are making because I look at their big numbers. I don't look like per head. What are you making? I'm looking at gross income, what they have operating costs on, where their loans are. I'm like the big picture person. I'm not breaking it down. But I do know that the people that are going direct to consumer are making more money. Is it more work? Absolutely. Um, but they cannot, the majority of those guys are not able, able to even get their cattle processed fast enough to meet consumer needs. The bigger thing there that I see is we we made this switch so quickly during COVID. Mm -hmm. like it's it's really fun to talk to people that have been doing direct to consumer twenty years, and then the people that are like, "We're in three months," you know. Yeah, yeah. And so the, there's really a a learning curve that has to happen, and those people that just started during this whole COVID thing, I would just really encourage them to make sure their customer service is there. If people want to borrow. Um, or want to order ahead of time, make sure that that's there. Make sure that there's consistent stuff going out and consistent contact because we can't just go, oh, they'll call us when they're ready. No, that's not the case. Like I get my beef direct from consumer or direct from the, the producer. And I am like, there's one guy, like I don't even know when you're coming to town next because there's no contact. And then- like I get a lot of my beef from Nourished by Nature, who is Gabe Brown's son, Paul. And so I get a text every Sunday, Mary Jo, or I get an email. Mary Jo, you have to have your order in because we're packaging it Monday and we're delivering Tuesday. And the other day I talked to Paul and I was like, dude, like I don't read my emails on Sundays. <laughs> so that's great. And I see it on Monday, but you should be texting me, not emailing mm -hmm. me. 
And so we need to always be thinking of those things if we are going to continue to survive when COVID goes away and people slowly go back to the stores to convenience. Yeah, that's that big thing there, convenience. I mean, you've got to do like maybe for the email thing, whenever you're signing up an account, click, oh, hey, text me instead of emailing me. I mean, consumers want that convenience because they don't know. I mean, when they're going to be, like you said, like when somebody's going to go back to a farmer's market or stuff like that, like convenience is the big thing. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've, we've interviewed somebody, Boy Fresh Farms are here in Florida and they've been going to a lot of, I think they started right before the pandemic, I think. And so they've been going to a lot of farmer's markets and they now have, I, I think they, they haven't rolled out shipping direct yet. But the latest thing they have now is a calendar on their website. And it's like, hey, we're going to be here on this day. We're going to be here um, on this Thursday or Friday. So they're like, hey, if you want to figure out where we're going to go, here's where we're going to go. And then we'll text you or something or email you. So, yeah, a lot of people are learning. You can't just do it's not just you can easily do direct to consumers. It's going to be a whole lot more work, just as much, if not more work than the regular way. It's going to be a ton more work. But your consumers know where their food comes from, mm-hmm. which is very important to them right now. And it's not for everybody. We still need those big farmers. We still need people to haul grain to the elevator, right? We still need people to be selling cattle to the packing plant because people aren't going to always go to the farmer's market or they're not going to go. They're not going to want to buy direct from the producer. But at the end of the day, absolutely. You need to be staying in touch and having customer service. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Are, are you familiar with Joshua Citrus? No, no. What is that? Oh my gosh. So they're clients of mine, but they're in Florida and they have um, a citrus. What do you call it? A, a grove. There you go. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah orange grove. Yeah. How to get my terminology right. <laughs> it is not an orchard. It is a grove. Correct. And they are, they are awesome. They've actually been doing direct to consumer for years and because they had their store in town burned down and they were forced to move back out to the farm. And they have found that people actually love to come to the farm and get their oranges. And now they've added like a strawberry patch and a pumpkin patch and they have music out there on Saturdays oh, cool. and they do an amazing job. And they've been doing that forever. Um, not forever, but much longer than COVID. But they have really, they have really got, they understand that we need to stay in contact with those people that are coming out. They'll have people drive an hour for orange juice. Oh, wow. You know, and I think that's pretty crazy, but you know, I'm not retired and (laughs) and a snowbird with nothing else to do. I mean, it's probably their things for the Saturday mornings. I mean, it's so fun because you can go get good products, support local business. And then if you want to have a genuine conversation and learn how your orange juice is made or or how your beef is processed, you can do that. And you definitely can't do that at Walmart or these big box stores, which Mm -hmm. I mean, those are great too. But I mean, this is much more personable. Yep. And Joshua Citrus actually does tours of the Grove. So they will, you hop on their little buggy thing and away they go through the groves and they'll give you a whole tour. It's absolutely awesome. And they do farmer's markets too. And that's really how they got started years ago, Mm -hmm. but they had to make the switch too. Like there were things that happened in their businesses along with the fire and other things that happened 
that they had to they had to pivot and say, you know what, we're not making money selling it to these big orange juice suppliers. So how can we better serve ourselves? Which is what we're seeing in the industry as a whole right now, Mm -hmm. just due to the COVID thing. So people can look at COVID as a bad thing. I think it was awesome that we really forced farmers and ranchers to say, what can we do for ourselves? Because we're done just giving our product away. Yeah, I mean, towards the beginning, it was either adapt or your business is going to go under. I mean, I saw so many videos of farmers like dumping milk or um, just throwing out potatoes, cucumbers, squash, whatever it might be that they just couldn't sell. And so I think this whole direct to consumers has changed the industry, really, and it's helped people be more resourceful. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's definitely been a Mm win-win. So in addition to all this stuff, you are also... A, a fellow podcaster. Uh, so you're the Farming Without the Bank podcast. So what kind of inspired you to do that? Just a lot of clients did not get, they weren't contacting me enough for questions. Mm. And they were, at, or they were asking, you know, questions kind of the same. Everybody kind of had the same question. And I'm like, all right, I have hundreds of clients. <laughs> and so how do I get this information to them? Or just readers had a lot of questions before they would call me. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people think, well, okay, I'm going to read her book and then she's just going to try to sell me something. And well, I'm not going to try to sell you something. I'm going to try to teach you something. But how do you know that, right? You just got some crazy lady from the internet that I just bought (laughs) her book off of. I just bought her book off of Facebook or social media or something. And now she's going to take all my money. And so it was a really good way too for people to just get to know me a little bit better and say, oh, well, she's just some lady from North Dakota that is German and honest. So So maybe we can trust her. Yeah, I do have. So I've got Farming Without the Bank podcast, and then I do have the Without the Bank podcast. Mm just because of the fact that I have a book for non-farmers as well. And so I've kind of separated the two because I do, when I, on my farming podcast, I, a lot of farm analogies. I talk a lot about farming. Heck yes. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so double dipping. I mean, you've got t- not one, two podcasts out there. I know one podcast is a lot of work, so I can't imagine doing two. That's good. Kudos for you. I just said this morning, this is hard to keep up with. <laughs> I, I just started the without the bank one and it is very time consuming. And then I forget what I talk about on, you know, so I have a whole list of what I've talked about so I can kind of keep track. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. I, I mean, I can imagine. And so do you have people on every now and then? Is it just you for some episodes? What's your whole format like on there? Yeah. So the majority of it is just really talking about infinite banking, talking about farming, um, I will have client guests on uh, that are clients of mine, but I do not typically have other people on because of the fact that people like you are doing a really good job of that. So do we really, I like, there's a lot of farm podcasts right now mm-hmm. interviewing people and I prefer to just refer them to those podcasts. Like if you want that information, Trevor's probably done it. So like my, cause I've, I've listened to your podcast. So a lot of your stuff is really geared towards more of the urban farmer type thing. And so if I have those clients, I'm like, go listen to Trevor. He interviewed this guy or he interviewed this person. And there's no, I, I just don't feel like I need to add to another podcast like that. Cause so many people are doing such a good job of it in this industry right now. Well, thank you. Yeah. 
when I started about three years ago, there were like a handful of good ag podcasts, but now it has just exploded. And I mean, with COVID, now the whole, all the celebrities are getting their own podcast. I mean, you're having friends of friends of celebrities having their own podcast. So I'm like, Mm-hmm. The market's crazy. But yeah, I found that I can't remember who said this, but they've said like the riches are in the niches. So the more focused you can hone in your podcast, the more successful it will be. And it sounds like that's what you're doing, too, which is awesome. Yep. Yep. That the riches are in the niches is what I live by. Like I when I did not I've been doing this for 11 years mm-hmm. and it took me about four years before I really started working with farmers solely because I was like, I'm going to starve. Nobody else is going to come do business with me. (laughs) And I have plenty of business owner clients. I have plenty of just employee clients. Um, And it is, it, you don't starve, first of all. But because I have that niche, I'm very good at, like, I'm very good with farmers. I'm very good with blue collar industries, plumbers, electricians, linemen, Mm -hmm. because most of them are farmers, right? And so I have real, I really have found my niche, but I went from starving literally to not starving (laughs) (laughs) because of the niche. It's easier to do the podcast without the bank is a much harder podcast because I don't have like, I'm not like, Oh, I'm just talking to linemen today. Or I'm just, you know, it's, it's a broader blue collar is a much broader industry. Mm So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. What would you say the breakdown would be um, for the people you work with that either farming is their supplemental income or farming is their main income? Because I bet there's like, is there kind of like a big difference there? That is a really good question. Nobody has ever asked. Hey, sweet. Um, I'm going to write that one down. (laughs) (laughs) Kudos to Trevor. Did it. I would say that right now, because I have a lot of people that are in the urban space, the regenerative egg space, because I have a lot of clients that listen to working cows podcast. And so there it's a much different thought process than the traditional farming. Um, I would say I have more clients that work off the farm and farm than just farm alone. Really? Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's tough to just be farming alone, or you've at least got one spouse that works off the farm. I mean, like my brother farms about 8,000 acres between him and my dad and his wife still works off the farm, you know? So it, it's really a matter of like, how much, how much stress do you want to incur? Yeah. (laughs) You want a lot of stress. You can go ahead and work off. You can, you know, solely farm. Um, Or if you are solely farming, are you stacking those enterprises and are you doing something besides just beef? Do you have some kind of egg tourism? Do you have um, some sort of VRBO type stuff on the farm? Hmm. Like there are so many amazing things that people are doing. And I'm, I just get so excited when I talk to these people because they are really thinking outside of the box and how can that farm generate cash flow? So that's another question a lot of farmers don't ask is how do we generate cash flow without just like yesterday I had a client. She's like, how do we generate cash flow without milking cows? Like we have always had cows for generations. How does a farm produce income without the ladies? I'm like, well, are you, can you do a pumpkin patch? Can you do VRBO stuff? Can you, you know, make, make, um, cheese? Can you like, there's all these other byproducts of the farm. 
which one do you want to use? And she said, oh, well, we have some hunting land across the road, some state hunting land. I said, well, here's what another client's doing. They put some scoria down, put some electric hookups in, and people can bring campers and rent the space and walk across the road and go hunting. And she's like, that's a great idea. I'm like, all we need to do is think outside the box a little bit about what's around us that's a need that needs to be fulfilled. I have people that post on Facebook that are like, do you know where I could go pick some wildflowers? I want to go cut them myself. Um, just plant some, like for us, right? It's just go plant some in a planter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you would have your wildflowers. But people from the city want that experience. And so do you have an acre that you could go plant some wildflowers and then charge people to come and cut them? How hard is that? You probably don't even have to weed wildflowers. I don't know a lot about wildflowers, but <laughs> yeah, that, you probably don't even have to weed them. Yeah, that's a good idea, especially now with COVID. I heard something about the University of Georgia did like a whole agritourism study, and they found that their agritourism was up like 30% or something really high because now people want to get out. They want to go do something out in nature, and they're like, hey, let's find a local farm and go go to a pumpkin patch or go camp at a farm or do um like, like you were saying the VRBO, I think that would be so fun to go stay at a farm and I don't know, wake up, go see the cows one morning or something. That'd be so fun. And it's extra income. It doesn't require that mm -hmm. much work outside of farming, but I mean, of course it would require a lot of setup, but that's such a good idea. Yeah. I talked to a couple ladies who I think like I tell everybody and I shouldn't steal their idea and spread it all over the world, but <laughs> it is such a good idea. They live in like the middle of nowhere, but they have two major cities. They kind of live between two major cities and they went and got a tiny home mm -hmm. and they put a glass roof on it. So when people lay in the house, they can see the stars. So all these people come from the city and it's a VRBO they come from the city and they want to experience the stars. They want to experience the tiny house. And they made like, um, I think that this year they were going to make, well, nope, I don't, oh, I want to say about, it was at 10 or $20,000 on one house. Oh, wow. Right? And so then they're going to put some tents up and have it kind of like a glamping, you know, where you've got like a rug in there and a heater and it's really nice because they are where it snows. Mm. But this is the amazing part to me, Trevor, is people will call down to them and be like, hey, we can't see the stars. And they go, well, the first thing is, is did you like open the curtain? Because <laughs> they have like a, a curtain that pulls across the glass roof. And then they're like, well, there are clouds tonight. But how sad that people from the city don't even like register that there's clouds. And so the stars aren't out every single night mm -hmm. if it's cloudy. But that's the stuff that they don't get to experience that we get to experience. And we don't even think there's value to it. And there's a ton of value to it. So how else can that farm make you money? And if, if we have a large farm, if we do have an operation that's not cash flowing, what else can that operation do to cash flow? I talked to a lady a couple weeks ago and um, she built, she had the Amish build her a barn for wedding venues. Oh, cool. That is how it keeps the dairy going. Mm. So that is the only reason the dairy is still surviving is because of this barn. And it took some capital to start it, but now it's up and running. And even through COVID, she made some money 
And I mean, think about it. You can use it for a wedding venue. You can use it for any kind of event center. We're seeing a lot of that happen on the farms too. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen like barn wedding photos on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's the new trend. I think I I mean, it was just like your normal church weddings. Now it's barns or a few years ago it was outside weddings. So yeah. And, and I'm yeah. sure the Amish built it in like a day for, I mean, they are quick <laughs> when it comes to building a barn. And at half the price. Oh yeah. Half the price. I mean, no power tools or anything. I did. I did see this thing and I didn't know about this. I think it was, it was on animal planet. It was that guy that builds tree houses. He was saying, oh. yeah, he, he had some Amish build a tree house for him, but apparently there's a rule where Amish can use power tools. They just can't own them. Yep. And I was like, huh, did not know that. Yeah. Well, no, they can actually own them. They're not supposed to use them. Oh, okay. So I have a couple Amish clients who, well, they're not really Amish anymore because they drive vehicles, but uh. <laughs> um, they grew up Amish. So their family owns power tools and they own equipment and they own vehicles, but they have to hire somebody to drive them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so he was telling me a story of one of them had to drive somewhere because the guy that was supposed to be hired didn't show up and he had to get to the doctor or something. And then he got back in the church, had a little conversation with him. Oh, wow. Because he is not supposed to drive. So I don't know. I mean, that's just what I've been told. I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't know that <laughs> for certain. <laughs> but yeah, I do have my um, my marketing guy. His dad bought cabinets from the Amish and they came in with their hand tools, you know, and he was watching them like they're going to be here all day to hang these cabinets. Like it's going to take them a week. <laughs> and so he like brought his power tools in and laid them on the floor and said, have at it if you want it. And they used them. So maybe that is, maybe that is a true statement that they can use them or they just didn't tell. Yeah. Anybody. Well, there you go. I mean, that's fun. I, I didn't know. That. Yeah. In my hometown growing up, there was a decent Amish population and um, yeah, I never saw them use power tools. I didn't know that till later on, but. That's fun. fun. Fun little tangent. There you go. Yeah. And so we don't we don't have any Amish in North Dakota that I'm aware of. So. Oh, yeah. So don't you do some speaking engagements as well? I do. Yes. So um, if the venue will allow me in, mm. <laughs> a lot of times I find that the banks are the ones backing a lot of these events. And so the bankers get a little bit scared when they see the title of the book. Oh, I bet. <laughs> um, so Yes, I do. I have spoke at North Dakota Cattlemen's um, and Farm Bureau events. And so, yeah, it's been fun. It's nice to just be able to share the message, but also... And, and look at some numbers, right? And show them how we can pass farms on without having to rebuy them. Um, how we can get away, how we can just get control back of everything. And then just to be able to visit with everybody afterwards and hear their stories. And it's amazing how many people are like, I'm pretty sure you just, do you know my family? They're like, that's exactly what happened to <laughs> us. I'm like, no, it's exactly what happens to everybody. Like very few farmers are planning on the transition and how to do it correctly. Mm. And I'm sure that's that's really fulfilling for you to hear too. You're like, well, hey, you know what? My books are getting through to people. My message is getting to people and it's like genuinely helping their businesses. So that's good. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is like I have a true passion that I will change the way the farming world is financed. Like if that if there's one thing I do before I die, it is going to be that because we cannot... 
every generation, Trevor, buys the farm. Mm-hmm. Every single generation buys it from the... How many times do we have to buy it? Like, we're not passing it off correctly. And then we wonder why we're losing farmers. The new generation says, you know what? I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be here to be broke the rest of my life. I'll just go to town and get a job. It's not that they've lost their passion. It's that they look at it and say, it's a business. You guys haven't been running it like a business for two or three generations. I'm not playing that game. And so something has to change. And it's, you It's you know, most of my people are under 50. <laughs> and so that that generation is changing it and saying, I'm not farming until I'm 90. Oh, yeah. I don't uh, blame them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that changes. I mean, that'll be that'll be a for sure a really good legacy to have. I mean, you'll change. I mean, people's careers, people's lives, and there's no telling. I haven't really thought about that. There's no telling how much banks have made off of farms because they're paying them over and over and over again. That's wild. Every every single generation, and we have to start over. So, like right now, we have generations that are mom and I just talked to a guy yesterday. Grandma is 90. Grandpa, dad is 65. And the son is the one farming it. So dad already quit farming. Grandma's still alive. Dad hasn't even owned it yet. So when grandma dies, dad's supposed to buy it at, say, 70. He's supposed to buy their his siblings out or he's supposed to just, you know, buy the estate out. And... I talked to a guy a couple weeks ago, $3 million at 70. Whew. So what is, he's like, I said, so why don't you just let the son buy it? Well, that's emotional. Let the son buy it. Like, my God, I haven't even owned it myself yet. Yeah. You want my son to own it? I said, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to buy it. And then you're going to rent it to your son. Just so that he then has to buy it again when you die. Well, why wouldn't you just let him buy it to begin with? Or the kids have rented it for 30 years and now mom and dad die and they get to buy it from the siblings. So they're actually buying it twice in their generation. Mm. I mean, it doesn't, it, what we're doing doesn't make sense. And on my website, um, farming without the bank, you can, I have a blog post that's called generational wealth. And I really show like, if we just bought life insurance and passed that death benefit on, And then they bought more life insurance with it. And we kept going in the example that I showed by the fourth generation, we'd be passing on like $44 million income tax free income tax free Trevor. And we only paid 18 cents for every dollar, a death benefit. That's, that's a pretty good ratio. That's really good. You know, who's doing the same thing? The banks, Mm -hmm. they have bank owned life insurance, the Rockefellers, like, when the wealthy people are using this concept so that they can continue the generational wealth, why aren't we? It's just what farmers are doing is not helping us. We have to stop complaining, moaning, and groaning and start looking for solutions instead of hoping that the government or somebody's going to come in and bail us out. We can do it ourselves. We just have to be patient. And willing. Yeah, yeah, willing and patient. Do you think this is one of those things where people are like, eh, this is just the way it's always has been, so we just need to keep doing it? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Jo, that's not how we've done it. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, we, d- I mean, we don't need to question this thing. system. We just need to do it. It's like, well, actually, mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People will say, well, this is new. No, it's not new. It's 200 years old. This is how it's always been. This is not new. Mm. Well, what's new, what's new is banks. I mean, the right. Federal Reserve is only 100 and some years old. What's new is IRAs and 401ks. They've only been around since 74, 47 years. And we're thinking that that's traditional. That's not traditional. Hmm. That's wild. This is just blowing my mind because I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that, you, I, you know, every farm would have to buy it for the next generation. And that it's, it's the banks are really the ones mooching off the system. But here's the hoping you can change that. And it seems like you're really making a dent on that. And that's awesome. That's really good to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope I'm making a difference. Oh, yeah. Slowly <laughs> but surely, I got a long life left ahead of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like you were saying, slow race. You got to win this. Be like the tortoise, <laughs> sl- slow and steady. So, Mary Jo, if people want to follow you, see what you're doing, listen to your two podcasts, where can they go to kind of follow you and learn more about how they can farm without the bank? Um, I am on everything, and I'm not super active on Twitter. But Facebook is the most active, Instagram, um, and then obviously podcasts, Farming Without the Bank, Facebook page, Farming Without the Bank. So anything you want, Farming Without the Bank. If you want to grab the book, I do, you know, if people want to have a meeting with me, it's an hour and a half free consultation, but you have to read the book first. Mm. Not because I'm just trying to sell books, but because you need to understand the concept. You need to understand. So we all need to be on the same page. And then we'll go into that meeting. No strings attached. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, no big deal. doesn't matter to me. Gotcha. Well, we'll, I'll be sure to link all that stuff in the description. Yeah, I hope some farmers listening to this reach out to you and are like, hey, teach me how to do this. I'm tired of paying the bank astronomical amounts of money. Help me get out of debt. Help me figure this out. So that's awesome. Well, Mary Jo, this has been super fun. I appreciate it. And we will definitely be in touch. Okay, thank you. Thanks again for listening to episode 115 of the Farm Traveler podcast. For more content from Mary Jo, go to the link in the description of this show or go to farmingwithoutthebank.com. And also, if you want to see more content from Farm Traveler, Go to thefarmtraveler.com where you'll see more episodes from the podcast, articles, articles from guest writers, and a bunch of other great stuff. And a special thanks goes out to you, the listener of this show. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. Thank you so much for listening. Um, the support and the downloads we get every week are astounding. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for being interested in learning where your food comes from. I love it. All right, so see you in the next episode which is next week. Okay, bye. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.